This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. last lecture, you remember we ended by considering the centrality of the gospel in evangelism and missions, and we saw how if we lose certain things, for example, the necessity of the gospel, if you fall into pluralism or inclusivism, or if you lose the actual proclamation of the gospel by thinking or acting in ways where it's just uh, deeds that are done, no actual words spoken of the gospel, or if we actually lose the true content of the gospel through either addition or, or subtraction, then we no longer have biblical evangelism and missions. Um, we would have lost the evangel, the gospel, so we can't have true evangelism. Well, this evening, as I mentioned, we're coming back then to consider a biblical theology of evangelism and missions, particularly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole Bible. And we'll spend this first hour focusing on some introductory matters and then as far as we can, in one sense, into the Old Testament and then finish up in our second lecture this evening. As I mentioned last week, the reading that goes with this particular, literally in, in your assigned text, are in the Bavink book, An Introduction to the Science of Missions. This is chapters 2 through 4. And then in the Pratt, Sills, and Walters book on An Introduction to Global Missions, this would be chapter 3. So if you had a chance to read those before tonight, then you should be in good stead to follow along uh, with the lectures. Now, as I said, we're reminded of um, the need to see, keep the gospel central, but I also want us to remember the centrality of Scripture in missions. And this is something you would have read in the reading if you've been reading through uh, Introduction to the Science of Missions. You see there a picture of J.H. Bavink, and this is what he says in the introduction. He says, in fact, we are today probably more conscious than past generations that theoretical problems concerning principles which could be answered by Scripture alone, lurk behind the countless practical problems which beset the church. Tact, intuition, and a clear appreciation of the difficulties involved are important, but they cannot show us the way. The ultimate and decisive word must be spoken by the Scriptures. And there he's making very clear that the Scriptures are central to all that we do in mission. Now the context of this quote, he's speaking about how the discipline or the study of missions has increased in particularly the 20th century. And part of the reason for that, he was saying, is because um, there had been a renewed emphasis, certainly the great century in the 19th century, and 18th century, I mean, and on into, into the 1900s. That great century brought more emphasis to mission, more mission work, which led to a host of new questions and a renewed interest in mission. But that also brought about then more structured discipline. And his point is, as more questions are coming and seeking to understand it, the place where we're going to find the answer is in the Scriptures themselves. That must be where our answers come from, the principles, the truth of Scripture. Now, in the first chapter of Bavink, in the text, he addresses many questions, many important questions and problems, what these questions are that are coming up that must be answered by Scripture. And the question of first importance, the most important question is this. He says, first of all, what is the basis of the missionary task? Why is it necessary? 
What position does it occupy within the total framework of Scripture's commands and promises? In other words, since the Bible is our final authority in the Scripture, the Scripture is our final authority, we have to answer the question, what is the biblical basis of missions? Well, how is that question usually answered? You may know or you've heard as people speak about missions or you've heard sermons on missions, sometimes the main text that people go to is, of course, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. For example, consider a classic text related to missions. As I said, uh, William Carey is known as the father of modern missions, and he launched, as it were, the great century of missions. And he had to deal with opponents uh, that were against the idea of foreign missions in his day. Is there any biblical basis for missions, they would ask. And in answer to this question, one of the things he did is he wrote a treatise published in 1792 called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. It was a work that was divided into five sections. And where did he begin? In his very first section, it's a section entitled this, An Inquiry Whether the commission given by our Lord to his disciples be not still binding on us. And so it was a treatment of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and also Mark 16, 15 as well. So that's the first place that he goes. Now, to be fair to Carey, that's not the only place that he goes in his treatise. He has four other sections. Uh, the next one is a kind of a, a, a historical section in which he shows what has been done to reach out to the conversion of the heathen or the lost. He starts in the book of Acts and actually traces out in that second section all the way uh, through to missions right before his time, with ending with John Wesley. And he also has a section that's fascinating where he tabulates all of these statistics about the world of his day, uh, the various nations, what he knew from his time. You may know as one who was a cobbler and a teacher as well, uh, when he was also in, in the pastorate in England. Uh, he would grab scraps of leather and other things and made a map of the world and wrote down whatever he could find out uh, from traders and others that would come to town. So he had a whole section on statistics. It's fascinating. But as I said, the main point I want you to see is that he starts with Matthew 28. And that's good. And it's valuable. But the question that we have to ask is this. Is there a potential weakness with such an approach of focusing on just one main text. And Christopher Wright, uh, in one of his great books called The Mission of God, uh, says that there is a weakness in this approach. Listen to this quote from that book. He says this, Carey built the whole of the biblical section of his case on a single text, the so-called Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18-20, arguing that it was a valid it was valid in his own day as in the days of the apostles, and that its imperative claim on the disciples of Christ had not lapsed with the first generation, as the opponents of foreign mission argued. While we would probably agree with his hermeneutical argument, and that his choice of text was admirable, it leaves the biblical case vulnerably thin. And so he goes on to say this could be a problem, particularly if it's seen as a kind of proofed texting method. You notice if someone comes to a different conclusion, for example, of what that text, who it applies to in Matthew 28, they might conclude then that there is no biblical basis for mission. 
he gives a certain example. For example, in the book, he talks about how uh, if someone looks at Matthew 28 and the commission and says, the commission where it says, go, well, that's not really an imperative. That's an attendant circumstance. The main command is to make disciples. So they don't really need to go. It's just giving an example of a way that someone might try to get around what the commission means, come to a different interpretation. So he says that whole way of, of grounding mission in the scriptures, it's not enough just to come up with a proof text. Here's another quote from that book in which he says this, However, whether one text or many, the danger that attends all proof texting is still present. We have already decided what we want to prove, that our missionary practice is biblical, and our collection of texts simply ratifies our preconception. The Bible is turned into a mine from which we extract our gems, missionary texts. These texts may indeed sparkle, but simply laying out such gems on a string is not yet what one could call a missiological hermeneutic of the whole Bible itself. It does not even provide an adequate whole Bible grounding for mission. So his point, I think, is it's a good point in saying that one text is not enough. Again, of course, the Great Commission is a good text. But to understand it in a deeper way, not just coming to the Bible with our own preconceived idea, yes, mission is biblical, the way that we do missions is biblical, and then finding text to fit in with our understanding, but instead looking at the whole of Scripture and drawing out from that. That's part of what he sought to do in that book uh, that you saw pictured in this slide, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. Uh, in his uh, later book, he kind of summarized what he says in this book. I'll tell you what he, what, how he summarized it. He said it this way. In The Mission of God, I was arguing for a missional hermeneutic of the whole Bible. My concern was to ask if it is possible and right for Christians to read their whole Bible from the perspective of the mission of God and what happens when they do. The argument of that book is that all the great sections of the canon of Scripture, all the great episodes of the Bible story, all the great doctrines of the biblical faith cohere around the Bible's central character, the living God and His grand plan and purpose for the whole of creation. The mission of God is what unifies the Bible from creation to new creation. In other words, instead of looking for a biblical basis of missions through a few proof texts, what we need to see is the missiological basis of the Bible. That's part of what Sills is, and Pratt and Walters are saying in that chapter as they begin, to see the centrality of missions in the whole storyline of the Bible. Now, what that means is we're addressing then the field of biblical theology. That's really what we're doing tonight and how biblical theology, what it brings to us in our understanding of Scripture, how it comes to bear on mission and missions. So what is biblical theology, though? Let me remind you, if you've taken biblical theology from what Dr. Barcellus had said there, uh, this is his statement of what biblical theology is to do. It's found in the lecture notes that he had on page 6869. This is what he says. Simply stated, our working definition of biblical theology is as follows. It is the theology of the Bible as understood by the Bible. Now he adds this distinction. Before discussing this a bit further, let me make a crucial distinction. A biblical theological study of a concept or theme is one thing. Such studies utilize principles established from biblical theology. They trace a concept or theme throughout Scripture and in light of Scripture's understanding of it. They are very useful studies when done properly. However, 
Biblical theology is broader than a biblical theological study of a particular subordinate themes of Scripture. It seeks to ascertain the overarching teaching of the Bible in terms of how the Bible understands itself. So what he's doing is he's making a distinction. Uh, You can have biblical theological studies. For example, maybe you're familiar with the series of books, New, New Testament or New Studies in Biblical Theology. And sometimes they have a book on just a theme, like G.K. Beale had the book on theme of temple, or uh, you could have the theme of wealth and poverty. Um, I think Craig Bloomberg did one on that theme. But the discipline as a whole, its main focus is not merely to look at these themes. And we could do that, and it could be very helpful to do a study, for example, of nations uh, in throughout Scripture, or a study, a biblical theological study of sending and being sent, that kind of thing. But what I want us to see and and understand is that missions is a central part of the whole storyline of the Bible and not just a subsidiary theme. In fact, it's part of the center. Um, The task of biblical theology, this is the next slide, as Dr. Barcellus goes on to say, what is biblical theology? He gives us its task. What biblical theology seeks to do is to state the Bible's overarching teaching in light of how the Bible understands itself. In order to do this, it must do four things. First, it must study the entire Bible with the goal of determining its overarching message. Second, while doing this, it must note how the Bible interprets itself. Third, it must reduce the overarching message of the Bible to its essence. And fourth, it must display that overarching message utilizing the contents of Scripture. And so it's trying to get what the overarching message of the Bible is. Now, we're not going to do all that work tonight. There's no way we could do all of that. And we're just going to kind of hit some highlights in that. But I do want us to start by saying, what is the results, the conclusions, taking what we learn from biblical theology What is the overarching message of the Bible distilled in its essence? If you were to state it in a sentence or a paragraph, what is the whole message of the Bible? Well, let's see what Dr. Barcellus says. He said it this way. What is the Bible's theology of the Bible or the overarching message of the Bible? The Holy Scriptures exist to bring glory to God, specifically through what he does in the Redeemer the incarnate Son of God, and bringing many sons to glory. The Bible goes from creation to new creation via redemption by the incarnate Son of God, and all for the glory of the triune God. This is the Bible's theology of the Bible. And what you can see very clearly, the emphasis, which is similar to what we know in that great question, from the Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? It's to glorify God. Well, he's saying the essence, essential message of the Scriptures is to bring glory to God, particularly through what Christ, the Redeemer, does in bringing sons to glory. And it goes from the creation at the beginning all the way to new creation, bringing glory to the triune God. So there's this emphasis on the glory of God. You can see this kind of emphasis on the understanding of what's the center of biblical theology or this essential overarching message of the Bible from others as well. Uh, For example, uh, the book Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church by Michael Lawrence. 
he says this about biblical theology. He says, I also want to walk or talk about biblical theology in a narrower sense. In this sense, biblical theology is about reading the Bible, not as if it's 66 separate books, but a single book with a single plot. What's that plot? God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ. Biblical theology is therefore about discovering the unity of the Bible in the midst of its diversity. And so at the very center of it, it's the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That is the very essence or the essential message. But then you ask the question, well, I don't necessarily see missions in that. <laughs> and how do, we, how do we grasp that? Or how do we see that missions is a vital aspect of even that short statement, God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ? Well, there's a few ways in which you could kind of see it. Maybe it's more implicit in the statement there. One example of it, for example, is the way that John Piper begins his book on missions. Maybe you've read that before. Is a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he begins it with this statement about how worship is the goal of missions. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, but worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. Worship abides forever. Well, let me put it this way. If the central message of Scripture is that God is glorified through Jesus Christ, another way of saying that is that He be worshipped as well by His creatures. And so that, in essence, mission exists because there are creatures that aren't worshipping God in the way that they ought. And so they must hear the redeeming message of Christ and must be brought into a saving union with Him and be made worshippers. So that's one way of seeing implicitly that, yes, mission is central, even though Barcelos or even Lawrence don't make it explicit in that sense. But I prefer a different summary um, of the message, which actually does make it explicit. And you can find it in uh, G.K. Beale's book, The New Testament Biblical Theology. If you haven't had a chance to read that massive tome. Uh, but it's found there on page 16. He gives the Old Testament storyline, and we'll also see in the next lecture, he also talks about the New Testament storyline, or you could say the essential message of each testament. And they're very much related. So this is what he says. The Old Testament is the story of God who progressively reestablishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise, covenant, and redemption resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this kingdom, and judgment, that is defeat or exile, for the unfaithful unto his glory. So once again, you see how the glory of God is central to the whole message of the Scripture. But it's about how he is redeeming, reestablishing what he calls this new creational kingdom through his word and spirit, redeeming people and those who are redeemed, the faithful, they have this worldwide commission. So even there in the Old Testament, there is this worldwide commission for this message, this gospel to go forth, and to go out, all for the glory of God. So there you see he actually includes mission, this worldwide commission, as a central part of the central message of the Bible. 
And that's what I'm trying to get at here, is to say, if you were to take all of the work of biblical theology and bring it down to this statement, you see in that statement, mission is there. Again, I'm not saying it's the only thing that's there, but it's central to it. And therefore, it must be running throughout the whole of Scripture. Biblical theology, in one sense, it gives us like the skeleton, that structure of the whole of Scripture and how it all coheres together. And mission, then, is part of that which holds all of Scripture together. It's a central part of it. So, that's what I want us to see in that sense. And to put it in another way is to say this, that God's plan of salvation and the message of the Scripture from all eternity has always included the idea of missions. And the heart of God has always been to take His salvation to the ends of the earth. It's always had the whole world as its scope. And so what we're going to do now for kind of the rest of our time in this lecture see how far we can get, is uh, to consider the centrality of evangelism missions in the Old Testament, some of the places where we see that. And as I said, we're only going to be able to trace some of the highlights. There's so much more that could be done. Uh, many other books that I can refer you to. In fact, maybe at the end of this lecture, I'll just show you a, a couple of books that you could look if you want to study this particular aspect of biblical theology uh, more in depth. But if you were reading through uh, the chapter there in Bavink, uh, he begins by saying this, at first sight, the Old Testament appears to offer little basis for the idea of missions. This part of the Bible speaks of bloody wars and annihilation of various heathen peoples. It appears to have very little room for mercy, nor does it seem ready to grant the blessings of the gospel to the heathen. The entire pagan world is portrayed more as a constant threat and temptation to Israel than as an arena or area in which God will reveal his salvation. That Israel allowed itself to be so easily bewitched by the heathen religious and bowed down so eagerly and so often to the idols of the surrounding peoples led the more strongly to an attitude of enduring opposition and served to raise the walls of separation to the greatest possible heights. So, at first blush, it can seem like there is no place for mission in the Old Testament. But as he goes on to say, yet... If we investigate the Old Testament more thoroughly, it becomes clear that the future of the nations is a point of the greatest concern. And so throughout, we can see there is a concern for not just Israel, but for the nations. And that's some of what I want to trace out with you and highlight. But where do we begin? Where does an understanding of mission being part of the Old Testament, where do we begin? Of course, we're going to begin in Genesis. But where in Genesis do we begin? Some would say we have to begin with Genesis 3.15. Kostenberger, he said it this way in one of his books, There was no mission in the garden, and there will be no mission in the new heavens and the new earth. The results of mission will be evident. Still, from the Proto-Evangelion, that is God's promise to the woman of a seed who would bruise the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15, to the end of the age, mission is necessitated by humanity's fall into sin a need for a Savior, and is made possible by the saving initiative of God and Christ. So my point is, there, Kostenberger is kind of beginning his theology of mission in the Old Testament with Genesis 3.15. But is that where we should begin? Or should we begin even before that? And I would argue that we should begin at the very beginning. Now in the Sills reading, if you read that, 
he says that Genesis lays out the worldview that makes the rest of the Bible intelligible. So you have to start all the way back in creation. And there's even, moreover, a sense in which creation, of course, is the setting in which God's mission takes place. And we could even say this, that God's very act of creation has his mission tied into it. I'll come back to what I mean by that in a moment. But let's then go to creation. Of course, we know how the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see God is the God who creates. And as I mentioned, there's many essential presuppositions for missions found at these, in this one verse. One is, it speaks that there is a God, God who actually exists. And not only that, he is distinct from his creation. He created. He existed before creation, and then he creates a world that comes into its existence. So that's an important um, distinction that we need to keep in mind even for mission. You don't have the creator-creature distinction. You can't have a God who actually sins or delivers or rescues because he would just be a part of creation. So even there is an important presupposition at the very beginning. Not only this, because God is the God who made all things, the heavens and the earth, he owns it all. And therefore, as the creator, he has the prerogative to rule over all things. He has the jurisdiction over not just one people, but the whole earth and all its creatures. So even from the very beginning, one of the things you see is the scope of God's concern is the whole world, because he made the whole world. And you can see that he owns it. For example, think of what's said in some of the Psalms reflecting back on creation. Psalm 24, uh, verses 1 and 2 say this, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. It belongs to him. The earth is his, and as its owner, he is concerned for the whole of his earth. Or consider Psalm 33, which says this, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth, so here's a call to all the earth, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. You see how he rules over all nations, not just Israel. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. There he does speak of Israel. Then verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So again, just showing you a reflection, his worldwide concern, focus from the very beginning, from creation. Zbavink, in his book on page 12, says this, Genesis 1.1 is obviously the necessary basis of the Great Commission of Matthew 28. It's, it's presupposition. Now, why did God create the world? And here is where I want to press a little bit further. It's not just that there's presuppositions 
that help us in our missions in Genesis 1.1. But creation itself, the very fact that God created, is actually part of mission, God's mission. What do I mean by that? Well, here let's turn just briefly to our confession of faith on the chapter on creation. It's the fourth chapter in the first paragraph, and let's ask the question, why did God create the world? Well, this is what our confession says, summarizing the teaching of Scripture. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. You notice, there's a couple of answers given as to why. Why did God create the world? On the one hand, because it's His good pleasure. It pleased Him. It pleased Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God. But notice the other purpose that's there in that paragraph. It's for, there's a purpose statement, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Creation itself is about the manifestation of God's glory. It's making known His glory. So creation itself, in that sense, is actually part of the mission of God being accomplished, His glory being known, manifested. And so there's a sense in which you can see, even just with creation, mission is central uh, to what's going on. Now we can look later on, as you come and see that this has really got to be the starting point as we even talk to people particularly in our day and age where we live in what can be called kind of a postmodern, post-Christian world. You can't take for uh, granted that people know that God is the creator, that we should start with creation, even in our presentation and speaking of the scripture, the gospel, the message of the gospel. Um, You see that, for example, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but when Paul is in Athens in Acts chapter 17, 22 and following, verse 22 and following, you see, where does he begin? He begins with God and how he created all things. Therefore, they are under God and accountable to him. That's how he starts at the Areopagus there. But let's move forward. Besides creation and even before the fall, not only is it that God creates, that shows his mission in that sense to manifest his glory, but we could also say, This gets to some of the question I think that was asked last week by our brother Omar. You can see it in the commission that was given to Adam. And here, there's a worldwide focus even to that first commission that Adam received, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You notice, part of their commission to be fruitful and multiply, they're to fill the earth, the whole earth. And they're having dominion over the things that fill on the earth. And so there is even there this kind of worldwide focus. Uh, You know how others like G.K. Beale have spoken about how part of what this commission is, he's put in the garden and what he is to do. That garden is like the very first temple in which God and man are able to commune together and what his commission is to kind of spread out and understand what he's saying is to spread the borders of the garden temple to cover the whole earth. 
and to fill the whole earth then with other image bearers. That's the multiply, the be fruitful, multiply aspect. The dominion part is covering the whole earth so that the whole world becomes a temple in which God's image bearers can dwell with Him. And so that, that's this whole worldwide commission. Now, I would commend to you to read in this book <laughs> further about this, particularly in, in its first section. And I'm not going to take all the time now to do it, but just to, to note a couple of things. Um, Beale notes as he traces through, and it's kind of his chapter on the storyline in the Old Testament, he traces through how this commission in Genesis 1.28 is alluded to or quoted n- number of times, dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. And he also points to a couple of differences between the commission that Adam receives before the fall and how it's repeated to his descendants uh, later on. That's found in pages 53 and, and 54. Uh, he notes a couple things. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me in the, in the Q&A time. But I did just want to read one paragraph, his conclusion uh, that he states. He says this. This is page 57. We can speak of Genesis 1.28 as the first great commission which was repeatedly applied to humanity. The commission was to bless the earth, and part of the essence of this blessing was God's salvific presence. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were to produce progeny, who would fill the earth with God's glory, being reflected from each of them in the image of God. After the fall, a remnant, created by God in his restored image, was to go out and spread God's glorious presence among the rest of darkened humanity. This witness was to continue until the entire world would be filled with divine glory. Thus, Israel's witness was reflective of its role as a corporate Adam, which highlights the notion of missions in the Old Testament. Again, commend that to you uh, to read further, and you can ask me more about it in our Q&A time. So, even in that commission, you see, before the fall, mission is central. So it's not just what we see after the fall. But, of course, we know what happens. Adam fails and does not actually uh, obey God's command, and we have the fall. So then, even there, with the fall, we find that God has a missionary response to the fall. Um, If you have your Bible, you can turn. I didn't put this slide in, but Genesis 3. What happens after the fall? After Eve and then Adam eat? Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9 say this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? You stop right there. He's, God comes to the man, to the woman. And he calls out to them. And here you see a clear evidence of our missionary God. God comes to fallen man. He doesn't just leave him. Uh, Roger Greenway in his book, Go and Make Disciples, an Introduction to Christian Missions, he says it this way. The good news is that Genesis 3 contains the first missionary call in Scripture and the first revelation of the redemptive purpose of God. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 says that God came looking for our first fallen parents. God called, Adam, where are you? God has been calling in a similar way for centuries through prophets and missionaries. 
and most of all through His Son, Jesus Christ. We see for the first time that God is a missionary God in Genesis. So the point, again, being made is that God actually comes to Adam and Eve. And then, of course, as you know, what happens? God proclaims the gospel. Now, he's doing it as he curses the serpent. But there is what we call that proto-evangelion. That is the first gospel proclamation, Genesis 3.15, where in cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a promise, a promise that there's going to be a seed, a seed singular of the woman. Now at first, there's the promise of enmity, that is, there's going to be not peace, not friendship, but an enmity, a warring between the serpent and the woman, and between their offspring, what we call the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then... Uh, there is a singular seed, he, that will bruise the head of the serpent. Now we know that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes, who destroys the work of the devil and redeems his people. So Christ's mission is here spoken of. God the Father will send God the Son to redeem his people. He comes, God himself comes and pronounces this gospel message, and then he will actually bring it about in space-time history in the coming of Christ. Now, of course, in a real sense, and you've studied this, I'm sure, in your biblical theology course courses, in a real sense, the rest of the Old Testament is seeing how this works out, how God brings this seed of the woman. And there's going to be, in a sense, a narrowing in which what you have is that seed of the woman and seed of the serpent continuing side by side. And that's exactly what happens right after this passage, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 4, the first two children of Adam and Eve, you have Cain and you have Abel. Now, they're two physical children from Adam and Eve, but as later scripture reflects and explains to us, for example, in 1 John, Cain is actually of the seed of the serpent. Abel, then, would be of the seed of Eve, meaning that she has the faith of Eve. He believes the promise that Adam and Eve have heard in the cursing of the serpent. They believe that this seed is going to come. And in fact, it would seem that Eve thought that Cain was that promised one. The, you may have know, heard before that Cain, the, the name Cain means, I've got him. So there's a sense in which she thinks the first child, here he is, this must be the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. I've got him. But the reality is, he turns out to be actually of the seed of the serpent and the first murderer in the human race in that way. And so it's going to be longer later on and you see that development and how there is, as we'll see, kind of a narrowing of where this seed's going to come from. Yes, it'll come from Eve, but then we see it'll be from Abraham and then further down until we come to Christ. And so after, of course, uh, Cain and Abel, um, then you have the increase of w wickedness. There's, of course, what happens with the flood. Um, beyond that, then you have kind of the development of what happens after the flood and how God redeems, of course, or saves from the flood Noah and his three sons and their wives. 
Um, of course, the next major emphasis we see after this is going to be the Abrahamic covenant when God comes to Abraham. But of course, prior to that, prior to Genesis chapter 12, uh, part of what you see after the flood is the development of the nations beginning to emerge. And here, again, you could talk about the theme of nations if you wanted to, perhaps in a paper. Um, and how from Ham, Ham, Shem, and Jeth come all the various nations. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 10. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And you recall there that instead of doing what they were commissioned to do back in Genesis 128, that is to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out, they all want to stay together in one place. Their concern isn't for the glory of God. Their concern there in building the Tower of Babel, as it says in Genesis 11.4, is to make a name for themselves, to protect themselves, and to get glory for themselves. In a sense, they're saying we can make a way to heaven ourselves. Babel refers to gate of heaven. And so the tower they're building is like their own way to get back to heaven, to get back to God in their own terms, a man-centered way of salvation as it were. Of course, you recall what happens. God comes down. He sees what's happening. And as part of his judgment, and also in a sense his mercy, so that man is not deluded into thinking that he could somehow bring his salvation about by himself, he confuses all the languages. So that's where we get the different languages and tongues that come. So that's the background. And after that's happened in the scattering and um, God comes then in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He comes to Abram, who you recall was an idolater at the time. In Genesis 12, 1-3, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what Dale Ralph Davis likes to call the quad promise of what is given to him, four things, main things that are promised to him. But the first thing that he has says to him, the very first words he hears is go. Go from your country, go to a place that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going to go, but that he's going to show him a place. And then he gives him this promise, this quad promise you can say it this way, he promises him a place, that is, he's going to take him to a land. He promises a, a people, that he's going to be a nation. He promises him protection, he'll bless those who bless, and curse those who curse him. But then, lastly, he promises him a part to play in his plan of redemption. That in him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the climax of this great call that Abram receives. The climax of this promise that in Abram all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you see, even in the calling of Abram, God's not unconcerned with the nations. Even as he's beginning to narrow down from whom the seed is going to come, his concern, the scope, is still with all the nations. And you can see this same promise being repeated to Isaac and also uh, to Jacob. It's also repeated to Abram in Genesis 22 after the sacrifice of Isaac is supposed to take place, of course, you remember, and how God provides the ram. After that, when the angel of the Lord comes and tells him to stop, he repeats that 
he will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. As I said, with Abraham, God begins the process of election of narrowing down from all mankind a specific nation and people out of which the Messiah, the promised seed, would come. But we need to remember, as Boving says, this division was a temporary division necessary in the divine plan of salvation, but one which would be abolished in God's due time. My point here is to show you, again, that God is concerned with the nations that's in his scope, even as he's blessing Abraham, even as he's beginning process of coming down to the singular seed, his concern is for all the nations, and it's manifested all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Now, there's much more that we could say about Genesis, but for time's sake, we don't have the time. We could go to Genesis 49, many other things. But I want to show a few other things uh, before we end our lecture, and let's move on to the book of Exodus then, and consider how Israel, in the Exodus and in what they become as a nation, are to be a light to the nations. And here again, we see mission in the Old Testament. One thing I think is fascinating in working through the Exodus is recognizing in what God does, even in the way that he brings Israel out of Egypt, his purpose is to, again, just like in creation, to manifest his glory, that it would be known. Now, I don't have the time to go through all of it, but um, if you have your Bible, you can, you can turn to Exodus chapter 6. And here, God is speaking to Moses to encourage him. He's a bit discouraged after he's gone into Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know you. I don't know this God you speak of. Furthermore, I will not let y'all go. Um, and then he commands the taskmasters to require the same amount of bricks, but they can't have the same straw. They have to go gather their own straw. So the people of Israel are greatly discouraged, and Moses becomes discouraged. So God comes and basically preaches a sermon to Moses to encourage him, to remind him of who he is. And part of what he says to him in verse 6, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Part of the reason God takes ten plagues, as it were, he could have done it in just one, he didn't have to take 10, but part of the reason he takes that time is because he wants Israel to know that he is the Lord, to know his power, that it would be manifested and very clear to them, right? In part, Israel had forgotten this. Even They'd been in Egypt for 400 plus years, and through what he does, he reminds them of that. But not only is it for Israel to know, in chapter 7, verse 5, part of what God says is, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And if you were to trace through the plagues, chapter 8, verse 10, Exodus 8, 22, Exodus 9, 29, Exodus 10, 2, you see in each of those, he's speaking about how Egypt will know and how all the earth will know that he is the Lord. So even in the plagues, there's a missionary purpose in it that the whole world would know that the Lord is God, the only God. And you can even think about how 
uh, when they come and they're traveling after the, they go out in the Exodus, these other nations, and even when they go into the Promised Land, when they enter in it, the nations had heard of what God did to Egypt. He had heard. So you can see even there in God's very actions, there's the mission and the missionary uh, work of God in that way. But then further beyond that, because he redeems this whole people, this whole nation of Israel, he makes them to be a light to the nations. Now, there's no explicit command in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel to go and engage in intentional cultural missions. They were called to be a light to the nations by exalting God in their life and worship and attracting the nations to God. You can see this, for example, when they come to Mount Sinai and what does God call them? In Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, this is what it says. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I'll notice a few things about this passage. First, Israel is called a treasured possession. That's a word that particularly means being private property of royalty. They are the special treasured possession of the Lord. They belong to Him. Now at the same time, notice verse 5 also says that all the earth is the Lord's. So God owns it all, but Israel becomes a treasured possession. Israel is called because the whole world is the object of God's care, and he is going to use Israel in his care for the whole earth, not just caring for Israel. Well, how does he do it? Well, it's because Israel is going to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a nation that's set apart from other nations. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Does that mean that everyone in the nation is going to be consecrated as a priest like Aaron and his sons? Or that everyone in the nation is going to be set apart and anointed like David to be king? Of course not. That's not what that means. But what does it mean then? Well, it means that Israel as a whole nation is to be as a priest to the rest of the nations, like a priest set apart unto God. And as this priestly nation set apart, it is to be a light to the other nations. In other words, they are to represent God to the other nations by the way that they live, separate and distinct from the pagan nations, worshiping God alone, having uh, the way in which they're governed with um, justice and equity, and the way in which they care for one another, they care for the poor among them. All those things are to be a light to the nations in that way. And here's the reality. You go through and you trace the life of Israel in the Old Testament, and you notice they are conscious that they live before the nations, that the nations are actually watching them. They see that, they know that, and they're concerned that God's glory and God's name be honored by the nations. Uh, we don't have time to look at these passages, but just to note them for you. For example, in Exodus 32, after the golden calf, when God is saying he's going to destroy Israel because of what they've done, how does Moses intercede? What does he plead? Well, he pleads saying, what will the nations think if you destroy Israel? 
he is conscious that the nations are watching what God is doing with Israel. If you destroy Israel, they'll think that you just brought them out here to destroy us. You brought them out here to destroy us. And they won't know uh, your greater purpose. You can see him pleading the same kind of thing in Numbers 14. Joshua does the same thing in Joshua 7, 7 to 9. And even the psalmist, psalmist in Psalm 67, for example, what, is, what does he say? What is the purpose of God blessing Israel? Well, Psalm 67, 1 and 2 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So the blessing of Israel is for the purpose of the other nations seeing, being drawn by the light of Israel to Israel's God, who is the only God of all the earth. Well, there's many other things that we could say about Israel as a light to the nations. But let's move forward. Kind of the next thing then is the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. And here, get kind of to the kingship. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, you see the covenant that God makes with David. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." You notice how some of this points back to what we've seen earlier in Exodus 19. It talked about a royal priesthood. And so here, this is talking about kingship, the king and the kingdom. It also speaks about the great name that he will have as a king, which brings us back to the Abrahamic covenant, how he's going to make his people have a name. And so you have some of, some of these points. But the climax of this covenant is there at the very end of verse 16. So the throne of David will be established forever. Well, how does this relate to missions? What does this have to do with mission, that the throne is established forever? Well, consider what we see in other revelation. For example, in the Psalms and the writings portion of the Old Testament. Psalm 2, what does that speak of? It's speaking about the Lord's anointed being established as king on the throne first few verses talking about how the nations rage against the Lord and His anointed. But then it says, the Lord laughs at heaven because He has established His King on His holy hill. And He calls then all the nations. You notice, let me just turn there. The last part of Psalm, Psalm 2. You can see as this throne is established, what then goes forth from that throne? This call, verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a call to come and submit to this king. This is where safety is found, blessing is found, refuge is found in him. So the nations are to come and to worship this king. He's a light to the nations. Certainly this is typified in David and also in Solomon, but we know it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well,
there's much more, and perhaps we'll pick it up and finish some of this about the Old Testament in our next uh, lecture, looking a little bit at the prophets uh, before we come to the New Testament uh, as well. But hopefully you're getting a taste of these things, but at this time we'll, we'll end our, this lecture here and move to questions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.